Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here this morning. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm a member of the New Hope Chapel teaching team. And today we're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, The Big Reveal. Well, one night many years ago, uh, my, my husband Steve uh, was putting the kids to bed and he tucked in our youngest. He's only youngest by 25 minutes, but he was the youngest and he still is, uh, tucked Joseph in. And um, he had a habit, Steve did, of praying with the kids, and he would pray first, and then the, kid, or he would, the kids would pray first, and then he would pray. And so he asked Joe if he'd like to pray, and Joseph said yes. So they bowed their heads, and Joseph said this, Dear God, it's me, Joseph, not the one in the Bible, the other one. <laughs> no, we got a good chuckle over that, and I'll never forget it um, that evening. But it did expose some of our little boys' mistaken ideas about God. That God would need to be reminded of who he was does not much match up with how he reveals himself to be in the Bible. But you know, I don't think that our little Joseph was alone in thinking that he could be insignificant to God. Um, I have this book that I read to my grandchildren. I adore it. It's called The Invisible Boy. And uh, I think it's fairly new. It's uh, Patrice Barton is the illustrator. Trudy Ludwig is the um, author. But it's a story about a little boy who is, feels that he is invisible. Um, and the, the way the artist portrays it is really awesome. She has the, the little boy named Brian, and he is in black and white. And then everyone else in the whole picture is always in color, which says volumes for how he's feeling. So here's an excerpt from it. Can you see him? Can you see Brian, the invisible boy? Even Mrs. Carlotti has trouble noticing him in her classroom. She's too busy dealing with Nathan and Sophie. When the bell rings for recess, Michael, Micah and TJ take turns choosing kids for their kickball teams. The best players are picked first, then the best friends of the best players, then the friends of the best friends. Only Brian is left. In the cafeteria, Madison and her friends talk about her birthday party. I'm so glad you guys had fun, said Madison. Everybody did, except Brian. He wasn't invited. Unfortunately, it's a story to which many children can relate, and even a few adults. One of our most basic needs is the need for significance. And even as adults, we can wonder if we even matter. And sometimes when we're feeling insignificant or alone, we start to wonder if we even matter to God. So today we're going to be hearing a story about a deaf man who likely did struggle with insignificance in his life, his community, because he was deaf, which created a huge disconnect between him and the people, the general population. Because in the first century, there was no sign language. There was no way really to communicate um, even the most basic of ideas. Deafness was isolating. So I want to read his story in Mark 7. And again, he went down from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephathatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. 
And he, Jesus, gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Heavenly Father, we just want to ask your help this morning as we go through this beautiful story. Um, Help us to understand it in a way that you want to be revealed. Please get me out of the way, Lord. Get your truth to shine through with your Holy Spirit. We just ask for your guidance and your blessing on this passage as we have read it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, do you have as many questions as I did when we start this story? I always have a lot of questions. What I do when I'm studying is as questions occur to me, I write them down. It's a really important thing to do when you get to the interpretation part of studying a passage. But uncovering the message of this story and finding out why it's in the Bible and what is its implications are, we really do need to answer questions that we have. So we're going to take a look at the que- my questions, you don't get to ask any, um, one at a time. So these are the things I wondered when I was starting my study. First of all, why does Mark give such a detailed travel itinerary? Do you notice that? This city, that city, around this bend, down three steps, cross the river, whatever. All these things. And he doesn't usually do that. It's unusual. <clears throat> why does he do it? weird. He says he went to Sidon, which is after Tyre, where he was with the Syrophoenician woman, but that's 20 miles north of Tyre. Then he crosses a river, travels down the far side of the Sea of Galilee, and finally ends up in the Decapolis region. It's on the other side of the Jordan uh, River from Israel proper, and it's now called the modern-day country is called Jordan. It was a horseshoe-shaped itinerary. And it was 120 miles in length. That's a pretty fur walk, if you ask me. 120 miles. I get mad if I have to go down to the basement. And, you know, it wasn't direct by any stretch of the imagination. It was kind of this loop like this. It would be like going from Washington, D.C. to Richmond by way of Philadelphia. It seems like Mark gave such specific details to indicate how purposeful Jesus was and where he went. Because such a long journey, and by the way, all of it in notorious Gentile territory, is an indication of his purposeful inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. The whole region was called Decapolis, and it was named for the ten city-states which were there. It was the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. The cities had this kind of confederacy of sorts, loose confederacy, mostly about defense against common enemies and trade ties. There were some Jews in the region. They had been displaced early on, and they were there, but the majority of the population in um, Decapolis was Gentile. And if you'll remember from last week, Jesus, in his conversation with the Syrophoenician woman, told her that he was sent to the Jews first and then the Gentiles because the Jews were given the option of embracing the Messiah first. First dibs. That's what they were given. Because if they did, they would actually be fulfilling the purpose for which Jesus, uh, God called them as a nation to him all along, to be a kingdom of priests leading the other nations to God. And Israel was where Jesus began and ended his ministry. He was conscious of them being first. But the beginning of our current chapter, chapter 7, Jesus started with a discouraging conversation with Jewish leaders, some of the Pharisees and the scribes who were criticizing Jesus for not following the order, laws, or 
oral laws, excuse me, on cleansing. They were so wrapped up in the possibility of somehow being contaminated by somebody that they neglected to see their own sinfulness within themselves. You see, the Jews during the exile had written their own set of laws, as if 613 laws of Moses weren't enough. And they were laws about the law. And avoiding Gentile contact was top on the list. Um, To the point where they called any Jew who had a lot of contact with Gentiles sinners. But as we saw last week, not God's design. In fact, it was actually the opposite of what God had instructed them to do. So after that conversation, Jesus got up and went into Gentile territory, and he was approached by the Gentile woman, we called her a Syrophoenician woman, whose daughter was demon-possessed by an unclean spirit. And Jesus exercised the demon from her. But look what had happened. A Gentile who was unclean by birth, who was unclean by the contaminating spirit within her, totally unclean by Pharisee standard, and Jesus made her completely clean. That was a valuable lesson for the disciples, that the Gentiles could participate in God's salvation through faith in the Jewish Messiah. Now Jesus is continuing his travels in Gentile territory, and he's taking the long way around, probably, presumably, to give maximum opportunity for Gentiles to interact with him, making the clean, unclean, excuse me, clean through faith in him alone. So the next question is, why did Jesus use such unusual actions during the miracle? Did you notice that? A little strange. He uh, takes him aside, he puts his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, he touches his tongue with the saliva. Ew. Then he looks up to heaven with a deep sign, and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Not as usual, that's for sure. So let's go through these things that he did and think about what they, how they fit together. So the first thing he did was take him aside. I love that Jesus drew him away from the crowd. I love it. Because, first of all, he took him away from any distractions. But imagine what that would be like to receive a private audience with the Lord. No doubt, lots of important people were in the crowd. Probably government officials, wealthy businessmen, locally known, very known individuals. But Jesus singled out a nobody. A nobody. Marginalized by society, unable to communicate any more than his most basic ideas. And then, after taking him aside... Jesus begins to communicate with him in a way that's tailor-made for him and his disabilities. He shows through his actions exactly what he meant to do and how he was going to do it. Remember, he can't hear. So Jesus shows him with action. First, he touches his ears, sort of like he's unplugging them, right? Then Jesus spits, and he takes that spit, and he touches the tongue of the deaf man. Now, in ancient times, it was generally thought that saliva had magical healing powers, and spit from somebody important was really good stuff, most powerful of all. It was actually a story passed down from that time, passed down by several ancient writers, of a man who approached the emperor Vespasian in Alexandria, Virginia. Why? To get healed with his saliva. So it was a thing back then. Now, did Jesus believe there was healing power in his saliva? 
Some commentators said he was acting like one of the traveling healer magicians. They were all over the place uh, because that's what the man, a Gentile, would have recognized. But I have a hard time thinking that Jesus would actually have identified with one of those you know, crazy magicians. He wouldn't have done it. I mean, when Herod asked him to perform a trick, he wouldn't do it for him either. So then why then did Jesus spit? Well, I think it was to tell the deaf men what he was about to do. He was going to heal his inability to speak, help him speak intelligibly. So now the man knows what's about to go down. Ears, tongue. Then Jesus looks up to heaven and gives a deep sigh. When he says deep sigh, it makes me think it was like with his whole body (sighs) looking up to heaven. I have two theories about that one. First, I think it could be a physical expression of his heartfelt prayer. He was showing, uh, he wants the man to know that his healing is coming from God. It's a second possibility, which I like even better, that Jesus was showing by breathing on him the breath of life, like the ruach, the Hebrew word for spirit in the Old Testament, breathing life into Adam, or breathing life into the dry bones in Ezekiel's desert. He would bring the man's ears and tongue to life to make what was useless function perfectly. Mark doesn't explain why, but whatever Jesus was communicating, it was for the deaf man's benefit, exactly what he needed. But you'll notice when the actual healing happened. It wasn't in taking him aside. It wasn't in his touch, either to the ears or the tongue. It wasn't in his spit or his deep sigh. It was in his command. Be opened. And at the end of At the word of Jesus, immediately the man could hear. His speech was suddenly clear as day, and he was completely healed. The people around him are amazed, extraordinarily so. Now, why this is such a surprise to them that Jesus would heal him is a little bit interesting because they did bring him to Jesus to begin with. But uh, I think it was because they thought Jesus would lay hands on him and bless him because the Gentile believed in certain cases that receiving a touch would give him a blessing. Well, they got what they wanted. Jesus blessed them all right, above and beyond what they ever expected. So what then was Mark revealing about Jesus to his first readers? Remember, at the time that Mark wrote his gospel, there was no New Testament. Mark is the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel written. Their only written word of God was the Old Testament. So the only scripture they could read about Jesus was actually the prophecies about him. Imagine having that be your only Bible about Christ. So Mark, I think, has been making connections in his gospel to the Old Testament all along. We've seen several examples of it. I think this is another one of those connections. Let me tell you why. The reason I think this, um, Mark uses this is the unusual word. It only occurs one time here in the New Testament that he uses to describe the man's muteness. That word, uh, mogilalas, literally an impediment to speech. An impediment to speech. Verse 32 actually links this story with a prophecy from Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, 5 to 6, we Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Now, when the Old Testament scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, 
in the period between the Old and New Testament into Greek, the word they used to describe the tongue of the mute will shout for joy is the same word that Mark uses here in the New Testament. And not only that, those are the only two times in the whole Bible that this word is used. So I really do think that God is making a connection for us that Jesus, as he healed the man's muteness and and his deafness, was doing exactly what the Isaiah prophecy referred to. Now, you have to know a little bit about the context of that Isaiah prophecy. It's all about God's judgment before that prophecy, his judgment on Edom, his judgment on Egypt, Tyre, Israel, and Jerusalem. But then in chapter 35, something starts to happen. The tone stops being about judgment and starts to become about hope. It's a change from total destruction to a time when the Messiah will redeem all things that is coming. Now, at Jesus' first coming, he did inaugurate the kingdom of God with his teachings and healings and um, death and resurrection. But that was just the first fruit of a future fulfillment, greater in the future. And in verse 10, this is what it says in Isaiah. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. You see, the kingdom was established by Jesus' first coming, and it was, and it was already starting to grow at the time of this healing. And one day, at his return, the kingdom will be completed. The creator will finally rescue his creation. Mark's quote of the crowd's reaction even gives further credence to this idea. What did they say? He has done all things well. Kind of harkens back to that Genesis 1, where God is looking at his creation and he saw that it was good. So he'd done well. Now Jesus is recognized for the same perfection of works. So why did Jesus tell him not to proclaim his healing? And this is the very last question we're going to do before we get on to the application. This is a bit puzzling because since the last time Jesus was in Annap- and, excuse me, Annapolis, Decapolis, <laughs> he told the demoniac that he, he, that he healed. Remember the guy who had demons? He was out in the tombs and he, he healed him. He told him to go and proclaim his healing. And now he's telling the man, don't tell anyone. So huge difference there, same area. Usually this encouragement, go proclaim something, is only to Gentiles because they weren't looking for the Messiah's arrival. They weren't going to start gathering arms and get ready for a revolt because their champion had arrived. So he did tell people, like the Samaritan woman, go tell, go tell. Um, And that would have worked against Jesus' mission. He had a certain thing he had to do. But Mark does, does tell us earlier that the crowds that came in Capernaum were getting in the way of Jesus' mission. In 137, it says the disciples searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Jesus said to them, let us go somewhere else to the town nearby so that I may preach there also, because that's what I came for. And later it says Jesus could never, no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. I think it's a good bet that when he asked the formerly deaf man and his friends to keep the healing quiet for now, was to, so he could avoid the kinds of crowds that would mob him and could keep him from completing his mission. Okay, so I hopefully have answered the puzzling parts of this story. So now we come to the application. So what? 
What does this application, what does this story, how should it affect my life here in the 21st century? I'm not deaf, and I can talk up a mean streak. Well, it depends. And I want to ask you a question. Do you struggle with feelings of insignificance? Maybe you grew up with parents that did a great deal of criticizing, that whatever you did never matched up to their standard. Maybe you had a bad school experience when your classmates belittled you and treated you as if you were never even there. Maybe you were a victim of a spouse that neglected you, or worse, abused or abandoned you, treated you as if you had no value at all. Have you had friends that have turned their back on you and written you off for whatever reason? Maybe you've had a performance failure at a job, a responsibility that made you think you'd never amount to anything. You know, my dad used to say, it's a cruel, hard world. And he was right. <laughs> Just get on Facebook and read those condemning comments. Right to the heart. To people we don't even know. Watch cars cut people off on the road and then give them the finger as they're driving by. We live in a world where being right is more important than the people that we're talking to where the have-nots are so easily marginalized that the ones that do have uh, are marginalized by the ones that do have. It's important, it's enough to make anyone feel insignificant in one time or another. If you can relate, our passage today speaks directly to that perception because Jesus is Lord of the significant. He sees you on a very personal level. His relationship with you is of utmost importance to him. How do I know that? I'm looking at Jesus and how he treated the, blind, the uh, deaf guy. He took him aside so they could interact one-on-one. -on -one. There was a big crowd there. Everybody wanted to see him, but he made time for him. And his communication with him was designed to be exactly what he needed. Everything he did in their interaction was very personal. And at a word, the man's healing was effective, complete. That's the Jesus we love and worship this morning. A Jesus that cares deeply about you and your perception because you are not insignificant. You matter to God, to the God of the universe, to the Savior of your soul, to the spirit that lives within you. He's interacting with you all the time. And if you don't sense that, could it be, in a spiritual sense, that you've become hard of hearing? One way we can become hard of hearing is how we read God's word, because it is his revelation of himself. What we need to know is in his pages, but we limit how much we can learn when we approach it thinking we already know what it says. You know, that happens to me. Steve has a list of speaking, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, topics for each week. And when we look it over and he asks me, which one do you want to do? And so I pick the ones that I already know the, um, the, the answers. <laughs> and you know what's a funny thing happened? And even some of these ones that I've spoken on, I wrote a book on them. I know these people. And yet when I opened the pages and started to study, something completely new came out for me. Because there's always something more. So this is a quote I found I thought was really good. She says, Getting bogged down in old stories stops the flow of learning by censoring our perceptions, making us functionally deaf and blind to new information. Once the replay button gets pushed, we no longer form new ideas or conclusions. The old ones are so cozy. 
You know, so many times when we, we approach a passage in the Word of God, we hit replay. Think about Martha and Mary. Everybody knows the, the application for Martha and Mary. Mary was good because she was sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha was bad because she was in the kitchen and not listening to Jesus. But you know what? Martha was obeying Old Testament law by being hospital. And so when I, I struggled with that, when I was writing my book on Martha and Mary, a part of the book on Martha and Mary, I said, God, I don't believe what this has always been taught to be. I think there's something more. Can you show me what it is? And sure enough, he gave it to me. I, you know, this summer, women took a look at the role of women, as talked about in the Bible. We looked at passages of scriptures, maybe for the first time in a whole new light. And why? Because we just looked at the context, we looked at exactly what it said, didn't put any words, add anything to it, and we came up with a whole new idea than things we have been taught to think about that since we were born. So uh, these are layers, there are layers of understanding we only see when we dig into Scripture for ourselves and ask God to show us. He wants us to find him, we just need to ask you know, when I was a young girl, I was uh, struggling a little bit, not a little bit, a lot, with is, does God exist? I was a junior in high school and really thinking about, you know, was I really going to put my life into this thing or not? And I, was, I think I was probably just every child kind of reaches a point where Christ has to become their own and not just their parents. And so I was going through that process and not doing very well. And I wanted a puppy. Our dog had died a few months earlier. And I asked my dad, and he said, I'll give you a puppy if you will read this book. And he handed me a copy of a book called How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. If you're old enough, you might remember it. It was a big bestseller. And it was actually a study on Romans. And so I was really mad at my dad. How dare he try to push this on me? And I rebelled for a while. But one day, I got downstairs. There was a little guest bedroom in our, our downstairs, and I... I um, I'm looking at this book and starting to read it. It was doing nothing for me. So finally I said, you know what, God? Right out loud. If you exist, you're going to have to show me. Because I don't really think you do anymore. And I waited. No angel appeared to me. I didn't hear a voice from heaven. Nothing. And I left that room a little sad. Thinking I just shouted into the wind. But this is what happened. A few months later... One day, I all of a sudden realized that I no longer had one doubt in my heart that he existed, and not one doubt that he loved me. I somehow now knew that with every fiber of my body that the Lord had done a work in my heart. Why? Because it certainly was not me. I didn't move to change my mind. I told him he'd better do it. I kind of actually walked away. So when we're seeking him, he will make sure that we find him. Jesus told his disciples, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. One other way that we can miss the voice of God and his interaction with us is by keeping ourselves surrounded by background noise. And what I mean by background noise is what keeps our mind and our hearts occupied. Maybe it's in throwing yourself into a career where everything and everyone pales in comparison to what you need to do there. Maybe it's in staying so busy that you're always on automatic, going from thing to thing to thing. Maybe it's in keeping electronics going 24-7, never taking a break from keeping your mind occupied. You know, I used to wonder about how often the Lord impressed thoughts on me when I'm in the shower. 
It's true. I take a shower. I come out of there. I'm writing notes as fast as I can get to my desk because I get the best ideas in the shower. Or the other place I always got good ideas was walking the dog. Can't do that anymore since I've had knee problems. Steve does it all now. But, but the only thing I would hear then was the wind in the trees or the birds chirping. So I got to the point, I had so many good ideas when I would walk. I was so scared I'd forget them. I started taking my digital recorder with me in my pocket so that I could take notes, voice notes, of what God was showing me. There was so much he would lead my mind to while I was walking in the quiet. It's why Psalm 62 says, My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. So in closing, I want to go back to that children's book that we began with, The Invisible Boy. And I'm glad to tell you there is a happy ending to the story, which isn't always a given when it comes to children's literature these days. Remember, um, unremarkable Brian, black and white boy in the midst of the colorful, eye-catching children. Well, one day, a new boy named Justin joins the class. And at morning recess, Justin actually speaks to him. Then, as the teacher is giving them a class project to do, get into pairs, he's the only one left, and Justin invites him to be a threesome with he and the other guy. And while they're doing all this project, little Brian is super creative and a really great artist. And so he starts to draw and draw. And then when the teacher sees what they're doing, which was far better than anybody else in the class, she notices and gives him credit. Now, the whole time these things are happening, Brian has started to come a little pink. And he gets a little pinker. And then pretty soon maybe parts of his clothes are showing color. And then in the last scene in the book... Uh, he goes into the lunchroom, which was always a problem for him, and the two boys in his group wave him over to come and eat lunch. And Brian, now as colorfully vibrant as the rest of the people around him, joins his new friends, and the narrator ends with, maybe, just maybe, Brian's not so invisible after all. Interaction with the right person can make all the difference. Jesus can take you from feeling insignificant to warmly loved and valued. He will meet you where you, with, where you are and interact with you in a meaningful, discernible way when you are trying to listen for him. We can find a lasting significance, and it's in Jesus Christ. We're going to close in prayer. God, we don't know why we're significant to you, but your word promises that you are. So we thank you for giving us this passage where Jesus' personal interactions with a marginalized man gives us hope for how you plan to deal with us today, that you are just as personally available as Jesus was to that deaf man and as powerfully proficient to get us to a place where we can hear you. Help us, Lord, to listen. Help us to hear your guidance and your wisdom and your revealing of your heart. Unstop our spiritual ears when we become hard of hearing because we want our significance to come through you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.